My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Sundays with Tozer on Mickles and Dimes. Justin Tozer is singular. One of the smartest, kindest, most generous, insightful, caring, understated, hardworking, impactful, selfless people to have ever lived. If you've never met Tozer, I bet you're skeptical. If you have met Tozer, I bet you agree with me. A math and science prodigy, Tozer grew up on a farm where formal education was all but prohibited. Yet somehow Tozer would make his way to the world's most prestigious firms, first in Silicon Valley and later in Los Alamos at the world's preeminent scientific lab. Yet no professional accomplishment compares to the countless lives Tozer has saved, changed, and enhanced. Please take the time to get to know Justin Tozer through this podcast. You will become a better person for it, and you will see that Tozer is singular. Sundays with Tozer, Episode 7. Tozer becomes a tutor at college and receives a standing ovation. We've been talking about um, the different, well, your hormonal issues and your lactinoma, and you said you're on one hour sleep roughly last night because you had just night sweats and that's a that's a side effect of the medication or a side effect it can happen at any time but it often happens at night and it's either a side effect of the medicine or it's just uh the hormonal levels not being properly controlled you know so a symptom of the tumor potentially or caused by the medication but either way yeah, it's part of the it's it's part of the normal kind of expected. Well, we've been talking about your mission in Japan, and you got home. You started working for Halliburton, and you you saved up money to go back to school. Do you remember what that was like re-enrolling at BYU? I was really excited to get back to BYU as soon as I could. And uh, um, my manager at Halliburton was not happy about my decision to go back to school. But um, I was certain that's where I wanted to be. And when I went back, I was... So this is post-mission, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a, a little bit different person at that point. And um, I, I had this, uh, I had this problem where, like, I, if I went to the computer lab or to the math lab or something, and I saw other people having problems with something that uh, that I enjoyed, um, I, well, I guess it kind of started with. Um, I was doing very good in my classes. And so people would come up to me and they'd say, um, you know, do you want to work with us? Do you want to help us figure out these problems? And um, pretty soon I, I had a very heavy course load. I still like to, I was still trying to get finished as soon as I could. And um, I would um, uh, help other people. But then I would go back home, I would go back to my apartment and uh, realize that now I could be in trouble myself because I'd spent too much time. And 
I remember one night, you know, just really, you know, I'm telling myself, these people need help. And by this time, there was already lots of them that I kind of felt like I knew. And I didn't know how to say no. And um, so I, I said a prayer and I got some kind of an answer that was something to the effect of um, you help those people that really want help. Um, and that narrows it down. There's some people that just want to get a good grade and um, and everything will be okay. Don't, don't worry about it. Just um, and so pretty soon um, I had a a big following of people who needed help in their science class or their math class or whatever. Um, and I, it wasn't that I was particularly more uh, capable in those subjects. I was just, I felt like I just, I, I enjoyed those subjects and it allowed me, and I also found myself being a better student as a result of helping other people. If you think you understand something and you try to explain it to someone else, um, by the time you finished explaining it to someone else, you know it better than you did yeah. before. Um, and uh, you're better able to perform um, when you got to do the work yourself. Your ability to teach was just crazy good to me, though, because I remember in middle school and high school, I, I remember taking a geometry class. I, I feel like that was, well, maybe my freshman year. And I just did not understand what the teacher was saying. I would get lost. And then I would go to your house and you, it would just be so clear and so easy for me. So I'm sure some of your classmates were benefiting from that same ability that you had. I had another tutor at BYU that could do the same thing. We had a, a calculus teacher. We couldn't, we didn't understand anything. And then the night before the exam, he would hold an hour review and he would just clearly teach us everything. He's like, oh yeah, that's so much more clear. And, and you had that ability, especially when it came to math. Uh, some kids have kind of called me the homework Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Who called you that? And what did that mean? <laughs> that means that uh, I'm obsessed with getting it done. And I had strange rules that um, if your homework wasn't done, uh, it didn't matter if it was bedtime or, or whatever. If you had to stay up all night, you stayed up all night to do it. What's that? Uh, you remember a guy named Craig Groysom? Oh, yeah. Um, he called uh, you the homework Nazi. <laughs> um, so, how many people, you say you've got this group of people you're helping, is this like two to five, five to ten? You remember ballpark? Well, it was in several different subjects and in several different places where we would just get together. And um, I don't know, maybe um, 15 to 20 and different, and you know, in each subject area. Uh, 
people were, um, you know, computer science was becoming popular. And a lot of people who were taking those subjects were struggling. And that was easy for me. And um, mathematics and physics, those were, a lot of people found those difficult subjects. And, and so in each of the respective areas where people go to study, there was a group and they kind of got to where they knew when I would be there. And, and I'd stay until, but I never spent any time with, if somebody just said they needed to know the answers, it's like, you gotta, you gotta say the right words. You want to know how to do it. <laughs> did you have any idea? I mean, of course you didn't, but imagine here you are, you're 22, 23 years old and imagining 15 years into the future when you've got just like a trail of high school students constantly coming through your house, doing the same thing, getting help with you on their math and science homework. Like who would have ever expected? And maybe this is kind of the beginning of you serving as a tutor for all these people. Maybe, but I didn't actually start that. Um, you, um, you remember Garn uh-huh. and, um, you know, they were, um, Nathan and Jake and, um, Allison, um, they were still living at home and, uh, they, their family been going through a tough time and, um, I've been asked maybe by your father to kind of help do what I could to kind of help make things easier for the kids. And obviously Jake was in scouts. And so um, I just walk over to their house uh, occasionally and, and check on Jake and, and then it got to where sometimes we'd fix something for dinner together. And and then there was this older brother there that I didn't really know, you know. And um, he seemed like he really had his act together. But one night when I was there for Jake's benefit, I see this older brother sitting over there at the table and he's got um, someone's math, probably an algebra assignment uh, laying on the table. And then he's got his paper and he's writing down everything that's on the other paper. (laughs) And then there's nothing, in my opinion, it is far more honorable to get a failing grade than to get a passing grade where you copied it. Uh It's just is a is a terrible flaw you know as a for a human being to copy somebody else's work and i saw him doing that and it was just an instinctive response and i said what are you doing (laughs) it was sarcastic and um and in typical garn style Rather than getting defensive, he looked at me and he says, do you know how to do these problems? <laughs> yeah, I know how. He says, do you have time? 
to show me how to do them? And I said, yeah, anything's better than sitting there copying somebody else's <laughs> homework. And that was the beginning of it. No way. Yeah, I, I hadn't had a single person uh, come to my house to do homework until that happened. And then um, he would say things like, uh, um, well, I need you to come watch my basketball game and tell me, you know, what you think. Uh, you know, what am I doing right or wrong? And I go. And um, I always had comments like, now I know they're absolutely stupid. But I'd say, you know, when you throw the ball, when your whole team throws the ball, it needs to go through the basket if you want to win the games. And then um, one day, a huge group of people showed up. Um, he said they all needed help with their geometry assignment. And, uh, and I, I was overwhelmed by the number of people really <laughs> um and one day i asked one of them i don't know can't remember which one it was i said you know what did nathan say i, I don't understand um that made you guys decide you all needed to come here to do your homework and he said oh nathan told us you're not cool unless you have a tutor <laughs> and so you were the tutor and he's so they were like sophomore junior in high school yeah i forget what year it was uh but uh well um, we're gonna get nate on here so not today uh -huh. but maybe maybe next time or in a, in a few you're weeks. in spain or something i think oh i think you're right yeah i know he's traveling right now so in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear, I want to hear his side of this story too. And we'll, we'll really dig into the beginning. I had no idea. That's really cool that it could have possibly been my dad that said, Hey, just kind of see if you can help this family out. That sounds like something my dad would have said. And he I'm was, pretty certain. Um, he had um, a very deep and far reaching concern about each uh, of the young men, and I'm sure the young women as well. Um, so um, we would visit at length about individuals, you know. Um, and I know that several times your dad and I had this, um, um, I, you know, I'd bring up this subject with your dad, and I'm like, do you think something's wrong with us that we visit for like for a really long time about just one of these kids? Do you think it makes any difference? And um, your dad said, yes. So that's where I kind of come up with the philosophy. It's okay to worry about your kids. It's okay to worry about um, people you care about um, because if you don't, you know, who's going to come up with some some good ideas on how to deal with problems? Mm -hmm. 
kids and their families, um, they're very compli complicated situations they get into. And there isn't any like little magic fix, you know, a family going through a divorce and a child that's caught in the middle uh, can suffer tremendously. And you got to figure out how, to, how best to help them. And you can't just march in and fix things for them. It's got to be um, well, very carefully thought out. And, you know, you, you should know that um, many times you were taken advantage of. On, on I was? Yes. Um, many <laughs> times we, uh, or, you know, we planned to go someplace and get something to eat, and you were asked to um you know bring somebody else along or 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 to engage somehow with uh one of your peers or maybe even a friend that that you didn't consider that much of a friend but we were trying to get to them oh you and my dad were scheming yeah <laughs> that, because especially with adolescents you know, an an older guy or uh, an older person looks like a parent. Um, we don't have a, a often don't have a good way to uh, you know to interact with them. But someone their own age, it's a lot easier for them to reach out and and invite them to something or get them to participate. We did that many many times. And that went back, you know, your brother, Ryan, oh my gosh, how many times we um, had him do this or that. So. And I'm sure you would, you would just suggest it and it would be like, yeah, sure, good idea. Or I don't know, maybe we pushed back sometimes, I don't know, but my sense is because it was so, I don't, I don't remember consciously you ever doing that, so it always probably seemed pretty natural. It felt natural because um, we always uh, tried to work through, um, you know, other youth that we had a lot of confidence in. Um, yeah. So my dad passed away in 2013, and I was interviewing somebody on this podcast, Ivan Mazel. He lost his son to suicide. And one thing that Ivan said uh, as he's dealt with the death of his son was that the greatest gift that somebody can give him is a new memory of his son because, of course, the memories that he has with his son are finite. But if, if somebody else can give him a new memory or, you know, he can learn something new about his son, that's like the greatest gift. So this is, this is pretty cool for me, Tozer, to hear you talk about my dad and get some insight into maybe how – and why some of and and one maybe in particular and I don't know if this was conscious or not but I think of Zarek <laughs> and I, yeah. I'd like to have Zarek on here as well <laughs> but I could imagine that was you know that that was probably you and, and my dad saying hey why don't you invite Zarek over yeah those are and one uh, one person that um might come as a surprise that uh, when, 
sometimes when I was trying to reach out to other kids, maybe that were not members, um, because I was concerned about um, um, a member, like Bergeson, for example, um, uh, uh, Robbie Neal. Oh, yeah. Um, was he had a capacity to be, uh, a, you know, a kind, caring person. And uh, uh, I don't know how many times after he uh, died that I'd reach the phone to start to dial that number. I dialed so many times and then realized there wasn't going to be anybody on the other end of it. Yeah, um, because you were pretty connected, of course, to the members of the church because you had scouts. You can see them on Sunday. And so you're trying to reach out to others who you're not seeing as easily. And so did you sense that Robbie was in trouble? Because my memory of Robbie, and he was just so nice and happy. And I never, I mean, to me, that when he passed away, that was it came as the biggest shock because I didn't as a as a youth I didn't see any warning signs. Um, his parents had come to me and said that um, that they wanted me to talk to him about going to college, you know, because he is a senior, he's approaching the end of his, um, you know, he's going to graduate, and they said he had. Uh, a tremendous fear of going on to college. And I think I told him something along these lines, which this this kind of uh this kind of painful uh now because uh and it it's something that I feel guilty about. I I told them I think I'm sorry, I can't remember who belongs to which generation anymore. But anyway, it could have been you that was already in college. I think I might have been, yes. Okay, anyway, I I called you and maybe a couple other people and said, you know, as soon as you guys get home from college, let's go have get together with Robbie. And the fact that you guys just had your first year at college, he can hear you talk about it. Um, he can... Um, you know, we can get into this subject and he can relate to what you guys will say. And and then we can deal with his fears or phobias or whatever. And um problem is that was too late. They were really worried. And my approach to the problem wasn't timely enough, you know. Um Robbie was a much more sensitive person than I think a lot of people realized. And just shortly before he committed suicide, I'm not sure that it would have happened. I know that there's a, a non-member kid that felt a tremendous guilt. Um, oh, what was his name? His first name was... He was known as the kid that could get you any drug you wanted, and he lived. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about... Yes, yes. Um, and um, they had... Um, he he uh, provided 
uh, ecstasy, I think it was, um, you know, um, a couple, couple of days before the suicide happened. And um, from what I understand, some people, they feel really good when they take it. And then as they're coming out of it, uh, they can get very de depressed, discouraged. And I know actually came out to um, the Neil's place um, um, when we were planting the tree and stuff. And he went up to his mom and uh, it sounded to me like he apologized. Um, maybe, maybe that was, I hope that was a turning point for him, but, um, you know, who knows what all led into, what all led up to his, uh, suicide. Uh, um, but I, I do know, I, Robbie had sold, um, sh shoulder surgery and, you know, his parents, their place was quite a ways out of town. And in the wintertime, you know, that seems like a long ways away. And they had their daughters um, to take care of as well. So they told him that after his surgery, um, they could not stay at the hospital uh, with him overnight. And I know that he was terrified to be alone at the hospital. So he came to my house oh, and asked if, um, and he told me how, how, how much that scared him and asked if I could be there um, that night. So um, that night, I think I, you know, the hospital's visiting hours are long passed over. And um, you're not I, a guardian. No, I'm not a guardian or anything. So I knew there were all kinds of little obstacles there, but I, somebody told me how to do it. I can't remember who. Anyway, I went in through the emergency entrance and found a pathway into the into the other part of the hospital and <laughs> went into his room and I just sat there all night. Um, watched Robbie's lay there asleep yeah <laughs> sleeping like a baby <laughs> and i'm like does he really need somebody to <laughs> just sit here and sleep um, well we're gonna this is all so interesting and we're gonna get to idaho falls well maybe maybe next time we invite nate garn on and have him share kind of some of this yeah. backstory as well <laughs> Okay, well, let's. Yeah, I, I want to keep going on on Idle Falls, but let's let's go back to BYU. So you're you're now you're doing the study groups. You're taking your classes, science, physics, math. You're really thriving. Are you starting to thinking? I mean, you, you're probably realizing pretty quickly that you're going to be an engineer. I'm assuming. Right, and I'm deep into that. And there's a unique problem. Um, in the history of BYU that's developing. Um, you remember, um, I, I don't think, uh, there was a period of time in the church when um, they decided to make missions um, 
um, for everyone, like 18 months or something like that, instead of two years. And um, I don't remember if it's, uh, then they changed their mind and they switched back to two years. Um, but maybe it was at the beginning of that. Anyway, um, that call that caused a transition in that program caused a large number of returning students back to BYU. In order to, they, they have a certain flow. Yeah. And something like that uh, can disrupt that flow and create a huge problem. I was in chemical engineering. Chemical engineering was a really hot subject at that time. And uh, the engineering students were in high demand in industry and particularly in chemical engineering. But BYU's uh, chemical engineering program could only handle about 40 students in the junior and senior curriculum because of the laboratories and yeah. just the complexity of what needs to happen. But oh my goodness, we've got like, um, suddenly we've got over a hundred students in the program and not and they're all legitimately in the program it's not like yeah. they're um they can be screened out yet because they're already accepted into it and the program can't handle it and they got to figure out what to do with all of these students because they could scale up um the laboratories and stuff work longer hours more shifts and increase their capacity uh, a little bit um but uh, they needed to get rid of um, at least half of the students. And so they decided they'd do that uh, by um, grading on a very tight curve. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it, it's not an easy program as it is. And these students were outstanding students. Um, most of the people in the program were still just uh, brilliant people. And um, as the faculty become more uh, stressed out about how they were gonna deal with the number of students, things got really, um, at times we as students felt like their efforts to get rid of us were at times, um, something we just couldn't understand yeah um you'd look at um two papers that have been graded one of them got like a high 90 something score and the other one got like a, a you know a 40 or 50 percent score and you couldn't see the difference in the two papers you know um, and you're like how is this happening well, your and, English skills weren't real good, though, so maybe you couldn't tell the difference, but I could. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> My math skills were. Pretty good. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. This is science. This isn't. Uh, this isn't literature. Um, and it all kind of came to a head in one of the unit operations lab because they really need to get rid of students and. Um, all of us students, we knew each other really well. And we noticed that the dean's son, who was in the program, his 
papers always scored very high. And even he felt bad about that. And um, we'd look at other, my own paper and other kids' papers, and it's like, um, when they say, well, you lost 20% of your credit because the figure numbers in your report were in, were above instead of below. And, and we're like, well, we're just doing what you told us to do. And then the other person, uh, they wouldn't get marked off at all. And then in the unit operations lab, they had like, I don't know, uh, several hundred gallons of a solvent disappear over the Thanksgiving holiday. And that was blamed on the students who'd last used the solvent and which meant that they were going to get kicked out of the program. And we did some research and, and um, we kind of assembled all of the information, but nobody wanted, I mean, there was this tremendous fear. You don't complain when complaining could cause them to turn against you, yeah, right? Yeah, you don't want to be one kicked out. You don't want to be the one that's kind of blackballed and suddenly, you know, your papers are always grading lower, no matter how good they are. This sounds like a recipe for you because either you don't, either you're not aware of the social cues or you don't care <laughs> about the social cues. Um, I saw, I saw my friends being, um, I felt like mistreated. Yeah. And yeah, again, um, nobody seemed like, it didn't seem like anybody was going to do anything about it. And we had one of those, we had like a weekly meeting with all of the junior and senior level um, students in a big classroom in the Clyde building. And uh, at the beginning of that meeting, I raised my hand and I stood up and I went through the list. I said, we calculated the, the leak rate from the solvent tank and when you do the math, you'll find out that 200 gallons can be lost over a three or four day holiday weekend because the valve had not been repaired. And we'd submitted the, um, the repair request to the maintenance department and our requests have been ignored. And we had also verbally made those requests and they'd been ignored. And oh, by the way, here's a person who got like 20% taken off their report because they put the figure numbers above. I mean, the figure titles above instead of below, but yet your guidance said to put them above instead of below. And then here's one student that over here who put them in that place and didn't get anything marked off. And it's just, anyway, I went through a, a long list with evidence. And um, by the time I got finished, I was shaking because it was like really, really quiet in a room with, um, you know, a hundred and some people in it. And then when I sat down, the whole room applauded. <laughs> and, um, and then at that moment, I think I I'm in really big 
trouble yeah at this moment i can't remember if you got your degree in chemical engineering it seems like yeah <laughs> it seems like you got a different degree <laughs> oh my god so, um, you know what after things did change and the professors um that were involved in that they actually said they were sorry and um that in the future we shouldn't wait so long to tell them that there's problems and suddenly I could do no wrong oh. which I felt bad about that too but I decided I'd best just be quiet suddenly my papers always got rated and got the highest scores even though somebody else maybe deserved the highest score <laughs> so, I don't know if I completely solved the problem but they decided they didn't want me. They, I guess they decided to make sure I didn't complain. But I was complaining about everybody, so I don't know. Yeah. So uh, a couple months ago, my boy uh, scored a goal from like thirty-five yards out. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty good, you know, it was surprising to everybody how far he kicked it, you know, to the fans and the teammates. And the other team and just kicked it right over the goalie's head and everybody, you know, grabs him and they're like lifting him up and chanting his name. And, you know, it's like, that was a pretty cool experience for dad yeah. in one lifetime to see people celebrating your boy. And in that moment for you, when you're getting, you know, this round of applause, uh, is that the only time you've had a, a room full of people applaud you like that? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty singular experience. Um. At least in that type of setting. Yeah, and it's a pretty unique experience. I had one similar to that at IBM. Um, um, which, that's a long story, but uh, we were trying to solve a problem that was preventing a release of a new product. And um, there were different areas of operations and... Some people knew the problem was in their area, but they wanted to imply it was in my area. And I was a good target because I was not a good communicator and not good at, um, I was good at my science, but uh, I was not good at, um, I don't know, uh, twisting the arms of- the Organization politics. <laughs> and, and yeah, the politics were just beyond me. And, um, uh, a senior fellow scientist at IBM um, decided that he was going to help me. And um, we had this big meeting where the people in the room were going to say that my area was the cause of all the problems. And I had evidence to show otherwise. And um I presented my results and there was like this scoffing and stuff. And then here comes this revered uh, scientist and, and highly regarded um, published um, expert in the field. And he just walked in the room. I think he kind of hid outside, to see how they treated me. And then uh, he walked in the room and he said, I witnessed everything Justin just told you. And the area is not in 
and the problem is not in 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 his area of the operation and yeah there was some uh some clapping and cheering from from those that uh probably because they saw that the bad guys there's politics everywhere you go and people want to look good to management and if even if they know they're doing wrong sometimes their desire to look good to management goes a little bit too far i think and um learning how to deal with those problems and look if you go back to the thing at byu a lot of students should have stepped forward and and said something that's part of engineering ethics isn't it uh to not you know um allow problems to go un unaddressed yeah if you're you can't do a good job if you fear what other people will say about you what if somebody offered you like a 10 million dollar contract to do some amazing work some amazing research work in in your field okay but you knew that there that that the um their approach to this research they wanted to fund was flawed and it would produce nothing useful would you what would you do would well, you say i'll take that 10 million bucks you know this is timely because in my field tozer it's a dumpster fire right now a number of high profile academics have been accused of outright outright fraud including one just a couple weeks ago who was the editor in chief of one of the premier management journals and some friends of mine, eh, colleagues, I should say, but I, I, I really admire them and know them a little bit, were basically able to uncover this woman's fraud. She's a professor at Harvard. And these other researchers, mostly from Berkeley, were able to figure out that she'd manipulated the data, just flat out made up the data. And this is, you know, one of the preeminent Harvard professors, editor-in-chief of one of the main journals. So th there's, a, there's a lot of that going on in my field right now and and i think there's wow there, i'm just concerned it's happening much more broadly than any of us would like to admit certainly more than we'd hope that scientists the, the pressures are so high and the rewards are so high that people sacrifice their ethics for this reward yeah it, it, integrity is so important uh in in the field um and um sometimes even the way we communicate when we still want the money but we know uh we might not get the answer that the customer wanted um so you know there there's been this ongoing debate about where did covid-19 originate did right. it originate in that laboratory or did it originate uh, from the uh, from the wet market or or some combination of the two what really happened and um, there was an extensive study um, which I highly respect because they didn't tell they didn't publicize they were doing a study it included probably a hundred scientists from 
uh, well-regarded universities throughout the world, including a number of them from the United States. And they analyze DNA evidence from the wet market out into the community. And they really have some insights as to what happened there and is probably the most legitimate information available. And it was hard to come by. It took them uh, it took them probably two years to compile all of that data and analyze it. It was tough work. But, um, you know, the executive branch of the government asked um, the national laboratories if they could, you know, weigh in and help find an answer. And um, they're offering a lot of money and the national labs, that's their job to pick up business. You know, yeah, pick up a, a national problem and work on it. And the request was kind of slanted towards uh, wanting to know that it came from, you know, a, a military laboratory or something like that, you know, the Wuhan lab. Yeah. And that there was a desire to have the answer come that way. So the response from the National Laboratory scientists was, um, we'd be happy to have that money. Um, I mean, we could use a big chunk of money. And um, it could have come from, the virus COVID-19 could have come from, um, you know, the Wuhan lab. We don't have any confidence that that's what happened. Well, how did all the media carry that? They got a hold of that. Just, you know, that wasn't even a scientific paper. It was just a, it was just a response to, a, to a funding offer, and all the scientists are saying, "Hey, if that, if that's the, the hypothesis you want to entertain, we don't have much confidence in it, but we'll jump in and spend your money. Just give it to us." <laughs> well, that got. That got widely circulated as uh, the National Laboratory saying that they knew that's where COVID-19 came from. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But um, there needs to be, um, we need to be careful about how we communicate, um, you know, uh, results and how we communicate when we're pursuing funding. Um, but throughout my career, I've always turned down money when I felt like um, the person trying to give the money was asking for a a flawed uh, result. A predetermined outcome. Yeah. Or an outcome that just wouldn't or produce a product that would have no value in the long term. Yeah. When were you at IBM? Was this a summer internship or was this after you graduated? I had a summer internship at IBM New Products. And um, I think that was my junior year. So this is probably possibly after your uh, your speech in the chemical engineering department? Yeah, yeah. And then um, during my uh, last year of school, they um, made made a job offer, and I accepted it. Oh, okay. And so my first job out of BYU was at IBM. 
So maybe we could wrap up there today. Um, there's a couple things I want to talk about still with college. I think there's still a bit more there. I remember, well, one, I'd love to hear about your internships. I'd love to hear about your work at IBM, which maybe that carries us more into post-college. But I also remember something about you tapping your some phones in your apartment and you... Uh, <laughs> oh, that's... Uh... Well, that probably almost goes back to um pre um no that was in that was in college um that was at BYU so maybe we could touch on that next time and and talk about the rest of your time in the chemical engineering department and maybe some of your other internships sure thanks for listening to the seventh episode of Sundays with Tozer in episode eight we discuss how Tozer mentally handles the stress of mentoring youth and he also describes the internships he had during college. Subscribe to the Mickles and Dimes podcast to be notified each time an episode is posted. Thanks again for listening to Sundays with Tozer.